You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Have you ever wondered, how did I get here? I guess many of us are thinking that at the moment. And now that we find ourselves in the strange place we're now in, what am I supposed to do now that I'm here? Back in 1994, they were very much the kinds of questions that I was asking. I found myself working as a resident in an intensive care unit in Western Sydney. It had been over eight years since I'd last practiced medicine. I'd had seven and a half years of theological study, including postgraduate research, and now this. How did I get here? And what am I supposed to do now? That's pretty much where Joseph finds himself in this story in Genesis 39. Uh, How is it that the foolishly arrogant dreamer of Genesis 37 ends up in an Egyptian jailhouse? And what was he supposed to do there? Stories are not always easy to get, especially perhaps our own. Misfortune, folly and other people's malice get us into difficult places. How do we make sense of that? How do we see God at work in the messy complexity of our own stories and the stories of others? Well, to help us get there, Let's go further down into Joseph's pit. For while going there may not make the story any more straightforward, for it certainly isn't, it will, I think, help us puzzle out what we're supposed to do when we find ourselves in the strange places that life takes us. Now, the story opens with with an unpromising beginning. He, He... leaves one pit in Dothan and heads to another as a slave in Egypt. Now, for any Israelite reader of the story, this is not a good place to be. Any Israelite reader of the story knows being a slave in Egypt, that's not where you want to be. His new situation as a slave, is is actually rather an interesting one. For as a slave, you'd expect he might end up in the fields or wherever, but he's actually in the house of a leading figure in the Egyptian regime, a trusted official of the pharaoh. Um, In fact, he's the head of his personal guard or maybe even his hit squad. Potiphar is his new master. It's the only time he's named in the story. From here on, he's simply identified as his master or his Egyptian master, which is interesting because one of the things we'll find in this story is that ethnicity and otherness play an important role in this story. So he finds himself as a slave in Egypt, but here the story takes the first of its surprising turns. 
is a young bloke. He's a, a rustic foreigner with no experience of the complex life of a major civilization. And now he becomes successful. Now, we know, of course, that this is really no surprise, for Yahweh is with him and makes him a successful man. Interesting thing is, and again, a bit of a surprise, his Egyptian master comes to know that. How? We're not told. Other than that Yahweh prospered in his hand all that he did. Now, it's worth tracking this, worth paying attention to this story. For he is in his master's house. Now, presumably he was a, a good, strong lad, but he winds up in the house. And given that Joseph is successful, his master does the sensible thing, promoting him to greater and greater and greater responsibility over his house. The result is that Yahweh's blessing works for and through Joseph to the benefit of his Egyptian master, his house and all he had. And so his master entrusts him with greater responsibility. So much so that by the end of this first scene, Joseph runs the show. Everything is placed in his hand. His Egyptian master's concern is only with private matters, the food he ate. And, of course, his responsibilities as a key player in the Egyptian regime. Domestic matters, everything to do with his house and his estate. All of that is left entirely in Joseph's hand. His master gives no thought to them. Now, this is all the outworking of Joseph's wisdom. Here, his wisdom is at last at work and it's seen as the ability to prosper in the real world, in the social world, in the economic world. And to do so, interestingly, here in the context of a very strange place, an alien empire, something which is unfamiliar to him in almost every respect. And of course, this outworking of wisdom also brings with it Yahweh's blessing. For it is that blessing that both gave Joseph wisdom in the first place and enables his wisdom to work. Isn't that surprising? That this is where Joseph finds himself, now blessing his Egyptian master. But perhaps not so surprising. Not if we understand the story of Genesis. For what was Abraham's call right back in Genesis 12? Was it not to be blessed in order that he might be a blessing? Now, of course, it didn't always work out so well in and through Abraham and his family. After, after all, Abraham had a trip to Egypt in Genesis 12. It didn't go so well. But here, despite the horrible way he gets here, now we find Joseph in Egypt blessing the nations. And now we think things are going to work out the way we expect. Things will go well now. Joseph will prosper. He'll be freed and rewarded and return home a success, just as his dreams suggested. 
Of course, we know the story. We know that's not how it works out. But it's worth pausing for a moment, isn't it? And reflecting on that, don't you think? For this story challenges the way we think the world works. We tend to think of a well-lived story as one with a clear and unambiguous and easily understood narrative thread. The stories we celebrate are of athletes or politicians or business people or whomever who always knew what they wanted and worked towards their goal. And despite setbacks, after all, every good story needs a setback, they ended up where they planned to go. Joseph's story? Hardly. I think we, we know how he thought the threads of his story would develop, at least the way he reports his dream seems to suggest that. And we think we know how our stories ought to develop, a clear, linear, straightforward progression towards our goals. I wonder whether the reason we think that is because in the stories that we celebrate, we are the heroes of our own stories. And the thing is, that's not the case for Joseph. He may be the most prominent character, but he is not the hero. And so the threads of his narrative aren't in his hands, but in someone else's. Someone who, whether or not he orchestrates all events, uses complicated turns of events to achieve his purposes. Events like the malice of Joseph's brothers and the accidents of passing Midianites, which are woven into his unfolding purposes. But let's get back to the story, shall we? And so at the end of verse 6, we have this little detail. Joseph, rough paraphrase, was a pretty boy. Now, let me note a couple of important things about that last bit of verse 6, things that an attentive Hebrew reader of Genesis would pick up. First, he's described. That's unusual. One of the features of, of well-told Hebrew stories is that they are sparing of irrelevant details that do nothing but provide narrative colour. Things like the inner life of characters or their outward appearance only get a look in if they matter to the story. So we know that something's about to unfold. A new complication enters Joseph's life, tangling the lines of his story. So he's described. But secondly, he's described using words that remind us of his mother, Rachel. Indeed, the same words are used. They are both attractive of form and easy on the eyes. I wonder if that perhaps explains Jacob's earlier favoritism and his brother's envy and hatred. Anyway, clearly this is important. And it is this quality of Joseph's, one which would normally be seen as an asset, which creates the next twist in the tale. And so having come to his Egyptian master's attention, he now comes to the attention of his master's wife. Ah. 
Again, verse 7 is quite sparing in its detail. This is often attempted, uh, described rather, as the attempted seduction of Joseph by his master's wife. It's actually much darker than that. Look at her words. NIV has come to bed with me. That's a bit, it's a bit soft. Lie with me. In English, three words. In Hebrew, it's actually two words. Bed me. Seduction? I don't think so. This is an act of peremptory sexual power directed towards one who is relatively vulnerable. Now, sure, Joseph runs his Egyptian master's domestic affairs, but he's still a slave, at best a bonded servant, in the house of one of the most powerful men in Egypt and one who is no stranger to the exercise of violence. And now this relatively young man is faced with this stark <laughs> proposition. Joseph's reply in verses 8 and 9 is, is brilliant. It's clever and wise and godly and, dare I say, staged by the narrator at least with a degree of humour. He refused, it says in verse 8. With me in charge, he told him, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he has owned is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has held nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Think about this. He's got a clear concern for the honour entrusted to him and a clear concern for God. This great wickedness would both dishonour his Egyptian master and be a sin against God. But please notice this. She tries to proposition him with two words. He replies with 35. Think about it. As if he's throwing words out, trying to fend her off with verbiage. Kind of like, Woody Allen, in one of his more embarrassing scenes, throws out this smokescreen of words as he heads to the door. And in this response, we see Joseph as still wise and successful. The next stuff he does, yeah, not so much. What we find in verse 11 is not the smartest thing Joseph ever did. It's not quite on a par with his ungodly folly of boasting of his dream and parading around in his fancy cloak of favouritism in chapter 37, but it's pretty naive. His business takes him to the house. Watch that word, by the way. But there's no one there but his Egyptian master's wife in the house. All the men of the house are out. And you think about it. So no matter how important his business at this point, in these circumstances, he has no business being in the house. As every woman knows. Now, perhaps like me and like most reasonably tall and solid blokes, Joseph had no idea what it means to feel sexually vulnerable. Although maybe after verses 7 and 9, he would have got it by now. There are a few 
places I feel vulnerable, particularly sexually. I mean, with a head like this, it's not surprising. But I can only recall two occasions when I felt sexually threatened. And that was not particularly overt. It's not a familiar feeling. Most women in the world are, are acutely aware of that feeling. Perhaps Joseph, like me, when I'm focused on a task, was oblivious to the circumstances, oblivious to the danger of being alone in the house with a sexual predator. But it's a bit thick, isn't it? And the result is disastrous. You can see that in verses 13 through 20. The result is he, he runs without his garment. Isn't it interesting the way clothes play such a, an important role in this story, um, even in chapter 38, which we skip over? Joseph leaves his master's wife, though, in a compromising position. Whatever the complexities of Joseph's life that led him to not say anything to his master, don't know what, now there's physical evidence of something going on between Joseph and his master's wife. He's left his clothes and run away. Not exactly easy to ignore. And so she comes up with a story to account for it. It is, of course, an outright lie. She piles up words as well. She, and in doing so, she cynically manipulates not only the truth, but the latent xenophobia of this large Egyptian household and their fear that allowing others into their midst means they'll all be raped in their beds. And she's willing to stick to her story and play it out to the end. And once again, it doesn't end well for Joseph does it? Look with me at verse 20. Look at 19. When his master heard the story his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Now, let me step outside the story again and bring a couple of things to your attention. First, a point of clarification. What happens here says nothing about women, especially older women. Actually, we don't know her age. And the predatory danger for young innocents abroad. That's not what this story is about. This is not actually about women and sex. This is about power and sex. It's about a person with privilege and power, seeing someone who is desirable, both physically and socially. I, I expect Joseph's success is part of his attraction, and seeking to claim it for their own. Women have a monopoly on that? <laughs> Me too would suggest otherwise. But second, we see a key aspect of Joseph's wisdom. Joseph is wise not just because he's able to navigate well the household and his responsibilities there. It's also, he's also wise in as much as he fears Yahweh. His concern is not to do this great evil, adultery, dishonor his master's trust and his privileged position. And we see also a remarkable contrast between this member of Israel's house and his family and ancestors. And there are so many clues to this. It's interesting, isn't it, that all of this happens outside the security of his family system. 
perhaps because he's outside the toxic mix of rivalry, twisted domestic relationships and abusive sexual patterns that typifies perhaps the most dysfunctional family before the Simpsons. Perhaps that's what gives him some clarity. And the narrator wants us to get that, by the way. He, the narrator says twice through the mouth of, the, of Potiphar's wife, has this man come to make sport of us, to insult? It's actually the same word that Sarah uses in her complaint against Ishmael and a play, in fact, on Joseph's grandfather's name. Yitzchak. But we also see, of course, his wisdom and his lack of wisdom because his folly contributes to him being where he should not have been in the first place. This mistake is not at fault, perhaps, but he's unwise. And it costs him dearly and complicates the story. And let me note one last little detail. As we'll see, Joseph is tossed into the jailhouse, heading down once again, but interestingly, a house nonetheless. But he's not dead. Think about it. He's not dead. Now, sure, this jailhouse is hardly a safe place. Just ask the baker in chapter 40. But he's been accused of attempted rape, a capital offence in every ancient culture. Attempted rape resulted in the death penalty. And his Egyptian master is furious. But he's still alive. Leaves us wondering, doesn't it, precisely where his master's anger is directed. Some of the passage doesn't say. Anyway, we can run through the rest of the story relatively quickly. We find now Joseph in the jailhouse. And we can run through it quickly because, you know, it follows a familiar pattern. Using very familiar words, e even the prison, as I've said, is literally the jailhouse. And because the end of this story really sets us up for the next bit of the story as it unfolds, the next narrative sequence. And in 21 through 23, we find once again, even here in a jailhouse, Joseph is the recipient of Yahweh's favour. And interestingly, this is a sign of steadfast love towards Jacob. The sign, the sign of that steadfast love is that the leader of the jailhouse grants him favour and gives him the same level of responsibility he enjoyed in his Egyptian master's house before the robe slipped, uh, sorry, before the wheels fell off. But once again, Joseph's story has taken strange turns. The threads of his narrow twist and turn untie themselves in knots. And I suspect, were we Joseph, we'd have no idea where this is heading. We'd wake up saying, how did I get here? And it's not obvious at first glance that Yahweh is with him and that all that he does prosper. At least it wouldn't be obvious to me, were I Joseph, tossed in an Egyptian jailhouse on charges of attempted rape. And yet it's true. Yahweh is with him. 
Yahweh has shown him favour. Whatever Joseph has in hand prospers, for Joseph, in his godly fear and wise administration, is growing in wisdom, and so in his fittingness to be an instrument of Yahweh's plan to bless the nations. And so, back to us, I guess. Have you ever wondered, how did I get here? I guess we're all asking that question in one form or another at the moment. And now that I find myself here, what am I supposed to do? I certainly did when I found myself working as a resident in an intensive care unit in Western Sydney, eight years after I'd last practised medicine, seven and a half years of theological training behind me. How did I get here? And what am I supposed to do now that I am here? It wasn't easy. This was not where my story was supposed to go. But once the dust settled, things came to hand. I had some excellent conversations with staff about faith, possibly the best I've ever had. But perhaps more importantly for most of the patients and their families, I had knowledge and skills and expertise that no one else there had. Not technical medical skill, just about everybody there was better at that than me, but pastoral skill, an ability to understand and empathise with the deeply unsettling experience of having someone you love teetering uneasily between life and death. I'm not the wisest or most skilled of pastoral counsellors. Those of you who've talked with me would know that. But I had training and experience and, thank God, really, Wisdom to know how to use it. God was with me, it turned out, and showed me kindness, chesed, faithfulness, and through me showed it to others. Stories are not always easy to get, especially perhaps our own. Misfortune, folly, and other people's malice get us into difficult places. How do we make sense of that? Joseph's story allows us to see God at work in the messy complexity of our own stories and those of others. His is a story shaped by malice, naivety and seemingly blind chance, taking him down and down into a jailhouse in Egypt. A knotty and opaque story, if ever there was one. But this is still Jacob's story and still God's story, because this is a part part of the story of God's complicated faithfulness to God's promises. And those of us who have the cheating knowledge of how the story ends know that this is all used by God as part of God's purposes of blessing the whole nation of Egypt in very difficult circumstances and saving God's people from a crisis that would have killed them off almost before their story got going. How much of that was apparent to Joseph? I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it, that while the narrator repeatedly tells us that Yahweh blessed Joseph, the only character in the story who sees that is his Egyptian master. It's not until much later in the story that Joseph is able to see all of this as subject to the providential workings of a God who is able to purpose good out of intended evil. That's how it often works, isn't it? We don't see the significance of what God might be doing in our difficult stories. 
It's the others who look on and benefit from them that see the blessing of God at work in stories that seem to us to be heading relentlessly down. And sometimes, in retrospect, but only then, we see the way that the God who is known for working through the darkest of stories, think for a moment of the cross, has been achieving God's purposes in our stories, threading God's own grand designs of blessing and salvation through the knotted, tangled lines of our story. But really, do we see that? All we see are the circumstances in which we find ourselves. But what Joseph's story also shows us is that those circumstances, whatever they may be, can be used by God in blessing others and even us. And of course, the bigger story into which Joseph's story and ours are woven also gives us a cheating knowledge of how the story ends in Jesus' resurrection and ours, in the bringing of all things to their God-appointed end, to the weaving of all the tangled threads of our lives into the story of the grace and glory of God. And it also shows us how God's purposes can be at work in these fine details of our little stories in the face of whatever complications we endure. By the exercise of wisdom, Joseph's Success comes not at this stage through dreams and visions and the clear guiding hand of God. It's found in him turning his hand to the tasks that lie before him, seeking to do those jobs well and with integrity and with an eye to the glory of God and the honouring of God in obedience. And it's in that, in the gritty, mundane realities of dishing out food and organising labour, in the hard and embarrassing work of avoiding temptation and honouring the place we find ourselves in, that we and others will eventually come to see God at work, bringing life and blessing through us to the worlds in which we live, contributing our little bit to the unfolding drama of God bringing life to a world of death, blessing to the nations who so desperately need it. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you. We thank you for your gifts of wisdom and time and place. We ask that you might help us to discern the meaning of the places and times we find ourselves in now, that you would help us to see the things our hands should find to do, that you might prosper the work of our hands and through us bless those around us for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.